You know, the companies had joint interests and they worked together. Mutually growing each other. Now it's, uh, what was it, one-upping one another or Doggy cut dog. slashing and it became a different world, yes. You know what my husband always blamed it on? He blamed it on the uh, MBAs. Ah. He used to say yeah. that when the companies were run by geologists, they're different, yeah. Yeah. No, engineers and geologists, they think differently. Yeah. Engineers specifically, they're very, oh, their husband must have been very detail-oriented. But, you know, he, he felt sorry for the upcoming engineers because yeah. he felt to be spend all your time in front of a computer and not be out in the field you know. and see what was going on. Mm -hmm. That's what happened to me here. You're looking at seismic lines and this and that. I said, oh my God, this is my life. Okay. And it's been a, a good entrepreneurial journey. Did your husband love what he did though? Oh, yes. Yeah. He never ever, well, he's a bit like I am. We were both really grateful for the career we had chosen. And you were a teacher too. I was. Yeah. That patience is... Next level, what you did. I always have to admire teachers. Where did you go to school in, Cal so I, in Calgary? In Calgary, yeah. I went to, uh, well, I grew up in the Northeast, just like most immigrants. Um, Whitehorn, and then I went to, moved to the Northwest. Well, I taught in, I loved the Northeast. I taught at Ian Basil Jet. Do you know that high school? No, where's that one? Ian Basil. It's out in Forest Lawn. Oh, okay. There was a, the high school, other one was Jack James was around the area? Yeah, yeah. well there was uh, Ernest Morrow, Okay. Yeah. Sir Wilfrid Laurier, mm -hmm. and Ian Basildet were the junior high schools. And then what other one? Oh, at grade 10 I went to James Fowler. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that was Northwest. Northwest, yeah, on 4th. Yeah. yeah. yeah that was, uh, do you miss teaching at times? Yes. Yeah. I don't miss some of the teachers. Oh, I bet. And I bet you over the years they've changed the, the way their teaching style, their purpose. Yeah. Uh, the way they feel about the profession. Well, you know, one of the teachers there. I'll put it down so it doesn't bother. Said um, he was he was a very high strung person, and something happened, and I I said to him, w "What is bothering you?" And he said, oh, you're just a rich bitch who lives in Mount Royal. What are you doing here? No, really? And was this in the, your later years? Yeah. Was Mount Royal back in the day a prominent area? Well, I mean, the houses here. Uh, I think that fellow had gone to school at Western Canada High School. And there would be a lot of... Mount Royal kids that maybe weren't too nice to him, I don't know. Yeah, no, I know. A lot of my friends grew up and went to Western and they lived in the area. It was such a beautiful area because they can go home for lunch and go back. And, yeah. and 17th has changed. But, you know, I, I think I said to this on the phone, when I grew, I was born in an apartment building called the... Um, the Marlboro Apartments, no longer there, but mm -hmm. they were on uh, 4th Street okay. and just off between 12th and 11th Avenues. 
sort of kitty corner to the library, you know, the memorial memorial Memorial, park. That's where I was born. And um, I don't, you know, we we moved to a house after that, but I I thought, here I am, I'm practically living in the same neighborhood I was born in. A few blocks away from Western, yeah. Have you ever gone back to Western and been like, holy smokes, this is my school? I, I, well, I took my grandson back there, um, well, must have been three years ago, three and a half years ago, because I was hoping he'd go there to high school. He didn't. He went to to WIC, West Island oh, College. Oh, West College, yeah. And I noticed that they still have uh, all the old pictures, you know, with the classes, and there I am in 1945, I think, yeah. 46. Uh, but anyway, so... Um, uh, he went on a tour of the school, and and then he came back, and I said to him, well, Matthew, do you think you'd like to, because he went to um, the uh, Earl Grey, and... Uh, oh, same as uh, your husband. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And he went to West Island College for junior yeah, high school, and I thought Western would be perfect. for high school. Uh, and he said to me, three to a locker? Only one 3D printer? I mean, that's all he said, like, why would I want to go there? And I thought, I, I did say to him, well, I don't think that's a very good, uh, you know, criteria for deciding you're not going to go there. But I do think he stayed out at West Island College, and I think it was, uh, it was a good spot for him. He seemed to be, he seemed to like it, and he did well, and learned how to, Certainly learned how to write exams. <laughs> I had, but uh, but I was looking at a picture of him because when he went from from Earl Grey to uh, West Island College, he went to West Island College for a tour, mm-hmm. and I asked him after, "What did you think of it?" And he said, "They have lockers." <laughs> So I reminded him that he's still thinking about lockers when he was going to high school. But he seems like a fun kid. Yeah. Fun kid, yeah. But, you know, he's been he's a lucky boy because, you know, he's only child and had lots of advantages. And, you know, my generation, when Cynthia was little, was when Disneyland first was opened. And, you know, mm-hmm. Disneyland was this constant advertising about Disneyland, and they had a program every Sunday night we watched Disneyland. All my friends took their grandkids to Disneyland. And so when Matthew was in about grades five or six and or so, I said to him, you know, I must be the worst grandmother ever. I've never taken you to Disneyland. And he looked at me like I was speaking Swahili. He went, no. But I've been to Paris and London and Africa. And he didn't say, so why would I want yeah, to go to Disneyland? Because that's not his thing at all. He had no interest in anything to do with Disney, you know. He liked, when he was growing, you know, little, uh, square pants. Oh, SpongeBob, yeah. Yeah, and square that. And, but, you know, it's different gender, you know generational things. I was reading in the paper today about um, what young people are talking about redoing some of the old television shows. 
Yeah. Like for one they mentioned was Frasier. Did you ever watch the show? I did, Frasier? yes, I did. Yeah. Thinking about, they have apparently have talked Frasier into coming back, and Niles is considering it. Well, of course, mm-hmm. the father's dead, so I don't know about Roz, if you ever watched it. But, but uh, also talking about... That was Ben Stiller's dad, right? No, that was a different show. Yeah, no, I forgot what the guy's name was. But, you yes. know, Fraser, it just happens. I never watched it when it was on. But, but recently, because I don't want to go to bed too early, uh, it comes on from 9 till 10. And it's just very funny. And, you know, the timing and uh, the acting and the combination of characters. Uh, it was a very funny show at the time. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't stay home to watch it, but if you have nothing else... Why not? Do you watch a lot of Netflix? No, I don't have Netflix, no. Uh, and I don't... I never turn my TV on during the day, and I only watch PBS News, because I read the Globe and the, and the National Post and the New York Times on Sunday. So that's all the news that I need. You, you never listen to the local news? That is interesting. No, I don't. <laughs> and I stop. Do you know, from the, as long as I, my whole life, the Herald, Herald, when we were growing, used to come at 4 o'clock or 5 mm-hmm. o'clock in the afternoon. No, didn't matter how poor we are, we still got the newspaper. The Herald. And no one could touch it until your dad was finished with it. Because you see, I lived in a very patriarchal society. My dad was the boss. And there were, there were five of us, five girls. And so all those years I have read the Herald until uh, three or four years ago, I thought, I'm not watching, I'm not reading it anymore. What made you switch? I gave, well, one of the things was is what they did in the election when the uh, ND were elected. Mm-hmm. Because I felt that their reporting of that, and I'm told it's still they love Rachel Notley. Oh, yes. And I, I found that, well, first, I don't think she's really a very nice person. And I, um, but I felt they so misrepresented her in that debate with Jim Apprentice. Jim Apprentice was a good man. That that was a real tragedy, you know. He, first of all, if he'd become the premier, I think he would, I think his, I think his motives were good in, I think if he hadn't, if he'd waited to call the election, I think he would have, um, I don't think he would have lost so badly. It's, I think that he, I think he would have been reelected because, you know, he would have had a, almost another year. And then... Uh, he, it, he was a good man first. Uh, because, but I think his reasons for calling the election were noble ones in that mm-hmm. he knew they had to do tough things. There'd been no leadership for quite a while, and the bureaucrats were running everything, and I think if he'd had that time to kind of get things straightened, uh, that's one thing. Uh, and people said, you know, you, 
don't call the election, don't call the election. So you could say, well, he didn't list anyone. But I think his reasons were were good ones. He didn't feel it was right to form the government and start doing really tough things that you haven't said you're going to do. But that debate that they had with um, where it was a turning point in the election, they had Brian Jean uh, standing up there saying, like a zombie, no more taxes, no more taxes, no more taxes. They had poor David Swan, who was so tired out. And then you had uh, Rachel Notley and Jim Prentice, and she kept shouting over him, and uh, uh, I thought her behavior was terrible. And I spoke with, um, what's the guy that was on uh, the TV, uh, Gordon Gillies. Is it Gordon Gillies? Gillies, anyway. Afterwards, I said, what do you think happened there? He said, we had no idea what we were doing. And we thought that she was, um, she, you know, completely lost it because of her behavior. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the Herald made out like she was the hero, you know, the heroine. She's fighting, and yeah, she's fighting for us, our freedom, yeah. Oh, yes. Anyway, well, I don't think so. And you know, the other interesting thing is that I had said, um, a year or so ago to someone, and right after the election, we haven't heard from Rachel Notley. He mm -hmm. said, she's in rehab. Uh, I went, oh. He uh, said, and it's not the first time. Uh. Now, if Jason Kenney were in rehab, it would be in front page headlines over and over again in the Herald. I mean, I'm, I think it's great that they're not talking about it. No, but you, I think you're right, though. I think it's a one-sided media. So I decided that I'm not getting the Herald anymore. And, the, you know, the only thing I miss are the obituaries. Oh, I bet you met, knew so many people. You're like, oh, I know that person. And sometimes my sister remembers to tell me who died or who didn't, but I feel badly. That's one of the things about this um, pandemic is... How, my heart aches for the people who've lost, because I know when you lose somebody, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how small a gesture is, it means a lot to you to have people around you and just supporting you. And I mean, you know, when my husband died, it was, um, well, first of all, I think he would have been astounded at the people who came to his funeral. It was, well, I was astounded at the number of people who came and the people who came and the people who reached up to me and the people who wrote notes and said things about yeah. things. That, I mean, I knew he was a nice guy and I knew he was what we used to call straight arrow. Was he a tough but man or a very... He was... Um, well, he had a strong moral code, and he lived by it. He lived by his uh, his beliefs, and but he was a gentleness gentleness about him. And you know, the people who showed up at his funeral, like the commissioner who had been in the Amico building years ago came because he'd say, you know, Mr. Moore was always so polite and nice and always asked me how I was. And 
gardener, mm -hmm. said, I didn't realize Mr. Moore had so many friends. I couldn't get into the church. It was so full. <laughs> you know? uh, so he did make an impression on a lot of people that you had in this quiet way. But he was... Um, uh, he did rush around to let everyone know how much he knew. He loved to be uh, under... One thing that you said the other day on the phone, how people would come up and say how he made them feel, just those little gestures when he, at the funeral. Well, first of all, we grew up in the Depression, and no one had any money. Uh, you know, there was a funny... Um, in the beginning of the pandemic, when there was a shortage of toilet tissue, and there was a joke about the... In the early days, we, you know, we used to order out of the uh, Eaton's catalog. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Eaton's catalog. And this, this story was that this gentleman ordered a carton of toilet paper. And they wrote him back to say, tell us the number of, in the catalog of what you're wanting. He said, if I had the catalog, I wouldn't need to be ordering the toilet paper. So... <laughs> That's funny. So you had to grow up in the Depression to realize that not everyone could afford to have boy toilet paper. It was the Eaton's catalog in the yeah. whatever. So no, but I have to say um, we were never hungry, but we didn't know any fat people either. Mm. Because, A, we didn't have junk food. Everyone, well, we always had a garden uh, and a root cellar. So you had the potatoes and the carrots and the parsnips and the beets. My mother always pickled beets, uh, cooked beets, greens in the summertime. I remember the first time I had uh, bird's eye frozen peas, and that was a real delicacy. It was, And then the, during the war, actually the rationing didn't really affect us all that much because we didn't have a lot of money to buy things anyway. Meat was rationed, mm -hmm. uh, sugar, butter. and if you, But if you had a big family like we did, well, you did have more coupons than someone who was living all by themselves. Because there's five girls, dad and mom, in Calgary. Was dad, and dad working for the railway? Or? No, my dad... Uh, well, he, actually, my dad... Had, when he was younger, he worked for um, Patrick Burns. Oh, Pat Burns, yeah. And uh, when we were, one of the luxuries we had growing up was we lived in the Burns estate uh, after Pat Burns died because we we're sort of like caretakers. It wasn't like we were, we were caretakers there. And then the depression hit and there were no jobs and my family, my mother always, well, she died on the prairies, but she used to say, don't bury me on the prairies. She had come from Wales and came to Vancouver. And they had, um, and so that we went to Vancouver hoping to be, have, be with her family. And things, my dad couldn't find work there. And he came back, so it was kind of in desperation, came back to Calgary. Mm -hmm and got a job with the Eaton's company and stayed there till he retired. 
Um, and I think I said to you, I don't know how my parents knew how to parent, because neither one of them had a, uh, what you would call a normal, or what is normal, uh, parenting, because my mother's mother died when she was, my mother was six or seven. She lived with an aunt because her father was a performer on the Pantages Theater. And I think my mother probably had to work for her keep, I don't know. My dad's uh, family came from Scotland. Uh, my grandfather, who did the Lions on Center Street Bridge, I think I mentioned that to you. And one of his actually is still around, isn't it? One of his lines are still around. Well, I think there's two of them. I think one of them's up, at least there's a plaque up at the Rotary Park. Oh, yes, there is one there, and there's one at City Hall. City Hall, uh -huh. yes. I've been, actually been meaning to take my grandson down yeah. to see that, to see the plaque that is his grandfather. Hey. Well, it was James Innes Thompson. He brought his his four uh, children, two boys and two girls, over to Canada from Glasgow. Then he went over to the war in 1914. And when he came back, he brought a lady friend. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, well, I don't know whether they were married, but he uh, cohabited with her for the rest of his life and had two, three, three children by her. And, you know, we never talked about those things. Um, and when I was in high school, in grade 10, my, would have been my half-uncle, mm -hmm. because it was my grandfather's son, uh, was in a year ahead of me. Everyone knew he was my uncle, we never talked about it. And my dad didn't speak to his father until his father was in his 80s. I think they finally uh, began to speak. Yeah. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it was, things happened in those days just as they happen now, but everything was very... Um, Taboo and hush-hush? You know, people didn't talk about it. And my grandfather would come and visit us when we were little children. And my mother would say to us, don't tell your father that he's been here. And then when we got older, we didn't ever see him, but I do recall that. You know, my, my father and my, he had a brother and two sisters. I don't know about them, but my dad and his mother, like would be my grandmother, were very bitter about, because my dad was the eldest, so he never really forgave his dad uh, for abandoning the family. So, but anyway, I realize now how fortunate we were to have had such dedicated parents. They saw that you know, we were all baptized, we all went to church, we celebrated every ritual, every day. It didn't matter how poor we were, we always had a celebration. Birthdays, Christmas, New Year's, Easter, 
My mother was Welsh. We had Welsh tea cakes on St. David's Day. We had haggis on Robbie Burns Day. Uh, we celebrated Easter and Good Friday. I mean, uh, it was, it, it might have been poor in the sense of, you know, we didn't have a lot of things. But we had um, a rich life in... Memories and love and affection. Yes, yes. Did you take that, what you learned, and brought that forward in your family life? Well, I tried to, for sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think, you know, I've thought about this uh, because um, Cheryl's family, they were a blended family in that his father died when... Uh, it was a comparatively young man, and his mother remarried, and he had a half-brother. Uh, so he had a different upbringing than I did. They're more affluent, but I look back now, and I think they weren't as as rich in, in, uh, in family life. Uh, the, the church was a big part of, uh, of my life growing up. Not in, you know, I don't, you know, of all the shall nots and the guilt and the sins, none of that. It was more of um, a gathering of people. Yes, yes. It wasn't. You know, I have a friend who says he's an atheist, and I ask him. You know, we talk about it, uh, and his reasons are for. He thinks of churches as sinning and it will. Well, first of all, he's gay, mm -hmm. and so he sees that as everything is thou shall not. And I, I've tried to understand, because that isn't the way it was for me. It was a haven, actually. I, I sang in the church choir, and uh, I loved the rituals, the candle, candlelight ceremonies, and when you're in the choir and you wear a white surplice and your mother washes and irons it, and... You know, this was all uh, part of, um, well, I guess it's, I wonder, how was I so lucky to have done what I've done in my lifetime? Mm -hmm. Do you ever go back in time where you say, man, I wish mom and dad were around to see this, or a certain person to see something that I... Every day I wish I had told my parents how much, I didn't know, I didn't realize, I just thought that was, well, you know, you think it's just normal. But I look back and think, no one, see, this is what I, see, I don't know, I think I mentioned this before, how we've become a very fragile society. Uh, you were, no one talked about being fragile when we were growing up. No one said to me, I love you. But I never doubted that my parents we were the most important thing. The family was the most important thing. They didn't travel and leave us. They didn't. It wasn't all about them. It was all about us. And I wish I had, that's a regret I have. Now, I, I used to, initially, when my mother and my parents died, I thought, you know, one thing I don't have to regret is ever doing something that I knew would disappoint them. 
or they'd be upset about. Um, now I wish I had, it's true, because that kept me on the straight and narrow for a lot of stuff in that I didn't want to be dealing with it. Uh, I knew there were expectations, but they weren't spelled out. You know the difference between implicit and explicit? Mm -hmm. They were implicit there that this is what, you know, I remember one time, I was very, um, I love school, but I was very uh, proud of getting all A's, for example, or H's when they had <laughs> brief honors. I said to my mother, you never uh, praise me when I do really well at school. And she said, well, that's what we expect. Oh, wow. So, as I say, I, um, I didn't ever, so, so much of, um, you know how you go through, some people go through life making bad decisions? Somehow I was lucky. I didn't make any bad decisions that ruined my life. And, and you know, you could. Uh, but it was partly because I knew my parents would not be happy. So I was glad I didn't ever badmouth them or be, you know, be rude to them. Or, well, you, well, you didn't in those days. Well, now but I now, I I now I wish... I had told them how important it was. But, you know, I look around now and I everyone say, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. I'm going, uh, does that mean anything when it's said so easily? And It's just a, a word of affection now, yeah. There's no doubt that my parents loved us and, and worried about us and cared about us and went without things for us. And how did they... How were they so unselfish? They were completely unselfish people. Um, if your mom and dad were around right now, and they're sitting here, what would it be like? What would that dynamic be right now, you think? Would they be, like looking back at your life now, would you say, holy smokes? Oh, I wish they'd see Matthew, my grandson. But they were, they were lucky in that, you know, I have to say that when I was, uh, you're young and you're thoughtless. Yes. Um, I used to feel sorry for my parents to have five kids to look after, you know, feed and clothes and whatever. And because I thought it was a, it was a burden to them. And they, you know, worrying about you and making sure you went to school, all the rest of it. And um, what did they start to say? About what they said. Uh, but now I, when they were older, you see, my mother had a sister. They had no children. She had a affluent husband and a nice life, and I felt. That my mother, here she was, they could do whatever they wanted. There's my poor mother with all these kids. My dad's family, his, he had two sisters. And between, my dad had five children, and there were only two other uh, children with the, you know, other, other three people. And now I think about, there's a lot of people, young people who don't have... Um, children now, they have dogs or cats, 
And I think, who's bringing them soup in their old age? Because after your children are grown, well, I guess maybe they could be a burden too. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But my family, my mom and dad had... Uh, the one good thing about it was that uh, their last years of their life, they had a... They became more social. One thing that they did, the only pleasure that I can remember them having is they, they lawn bowled. That was their, on Sunday afternoon, they would lawn bowl with the Army and Navy on 4th Avenue. And then when my dad was quite involved in, uh, with the Army and Navy and they did a little bit of traveling, but they, had, they enjoyed the last years of retirement and my dad died at uh, 75, which in those days, was, you know, was pretty good. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of, of their course, friends yeah. Yeah, started, were dying younger. I mean, 75 is young now. Uh, but they had 11 grandchildren and 13 great-grandchildren. So your daughter got to meet uh, your, both mom and dad as well? Oh, yes. Yes, she did. Although not as close to my mom and dad as my other sister's children because we were away. And uh, Cheryl's parents were, I always had, when I say a burden, I don't mean, I always felt like my parents at, at holidays, Christmas for example, they had a whole house full of kids and family. My, Cheryl's mother and dad, they had us. And, uh, and they had a son who uh, committed suicide. So Cheryl's half-brother? Yeah. Yes. And the other, and the sister lived someplace else. So if I took off and persuaded Cheryl to come to Calgary for Christmas, they'd be left alone. So I would not, you know, I spent my time in, I don't know whether I'd, you know, young people nowadays wouldn't do that. That does, they call it a sacrifice, or they wouldn't do that. No. no, no, and actually, to be quite honest with you, young women now, if they were treated the way I was treated, would have walked away or said to F Before, off. That's what I was going to say, yeah. Uh, but that's not the way my generation was. Was it very traditional, like, or you just had no other option, or you didn't think that way, even though you wanted to probably say it at the time? Well, you wanted to be a good daughter-in-law, yeah. like you wanted to be a good daughter. You want controversy. Just want it to... wasn't all about you. See, that's what I see now. It is uh, when I hear young people about it's they have all these rights, all these rights. Does anyone say you have responsibilities? Like uh, I listen to um, people complaining about the government not doing this and that. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I'd like a politician who'd say, uh, this is what we're going to do for you, but this is what we want, we want you to do. Work when you're able, save for your future, make a contribution to the community in some way. My, my dad, very clearly from when we were kids was, you pay rent for your place here on earth. Now what does that mean? It means you volunteer. It means you be part of the community. It means you, uh, it's, well, it's not rent in the sense of money. It, no, of course not. It's time. Uh, 
it's it's helping others and um, it's so say, interesting because you know like you said you didn't grow up affluent at the time but he instilled that in you guys to remember don't lose that value that's a beautiful trait to have in a dad to say remind you of that well Where as I say my dad was a non-communicator in so many ways, but he modeled stuff, in, and <laughs> it was, we grew up with adages, you know what an adage is, you know, children should be seen and not heard, a stitch in time saves nine, all of these things that, you, you know, your eyes are bigger than your stomach, you have to figure it out, no one says, you know, this not, is the manual. <laughs> uh, it was, you go to work every day, you work as hard as you can, this is your responsibility. He was very, I always talked about politics in that mm -hmm. frustration, like a lot of uh, Albertans, you know, I mean, Western alienation didn't start yesterday, you know. It was, uh, I grew up with my, uh, my dad fuming about uh, things that were going on in, uh, and I, I couldn't have been very old, but I was always very aware of politics. And I remember uh, when the social credit government took over in Alberta, and William Eberhardt was the premier, as the leader of the social credit party, and his big platform was everyone in Alberta was going to get $10. The government would give you all $10. Wait, and, uh, we're looking now what people get got over with, with the pandemic. pandemic. You know, but $10. And uh, of course, I think my dad asked the question, how is he going to do that? And you know what the answer was? With the stroke of a pen. Just write out, you know, just make write up more money. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, Ralph did that, right, with our surplus. And uh, this time around, I've seen it, and it's it's bothersome. I mean, you're just giving out this money. Who's going to pay for it all? And a lot, a lot of the young people uh, are getting paid more than they were at their full time job. So why should I go back to work? Well, there's that again about. Uh, Everyone should be expected to work if they can. Everyone should be safe for their future, not depend on someone else. It's amazing how all these people that are supposedly right-wing, I don't think they turned down the checks. I mean, there's no libertarians when the money was being handed out. Uh, and there's all kinds... Of, well, I don't know. I mean, the problem is that for every story... like that you hear about, uh, you know, as my someone was telling me, in the summer they saw a fellow at the, actually it was a handyman, he told me, a guy going out with all these games in a cart at one of the stores. And he, he said, I said to him, boy, you're going to have some fun. And he said, there's five of us live in an apartment and we all had now, with the government money, have more money than we would ever have, and so we're enjoying it. Um, but for every story like that, 
you don't want people going without food. You see, I taught out in Forest Lawn, and I, I like the parents out there. I, love, I like the students out there. Uh, they're hardworking people. We talked on the phone about that, and you said you admired the workmanship of these people and their upbringing and how they've been raised. Yes, and but you know who the ones that were the... I felt the stories were the working poor. Because the ones on the, the, the students that had that were on welfare, if we had a school f fee, the welfare paid for it. Yeah, of course, yeah. But the working poor, they had to come up with this. Mm -hmm. And many of those students, even though they are in junior high school, uh, immigrants mainly, could, well, there's a lot of rental housing out there, and so immigrants go there first. But they had evening jobs, and uh, one time, um, one of the uh, Asian kids says to me, you know, the resource officer, school resource, the policeman came around, started asking us about uh, uh, gangs. He said, when would I have time to be involved with gangs? He said, I have my schoolwork, and I have my job, and you know, I work in restaurants, and what. Uh, it's assumptions we make about people that 90% of them are just hardworking people trying to get along and they get you know my um, when I was teaching out in Forest Lawn some of my friends would say oh you know uh, we don't need all those immigrants we don't need all those immigrants and you know I, I, I was so happy that I could say to them you have no idea the rich cultural resource that we have in this city because of immigrants. I mean, I was glad I was there. But we say so many ignorant things because it is from ignorance of not knowing any better. Yeah, no. You know, yeah. you know who? Um, uh, I was so touched, but how many of my ex-students came to my husband's funeral? And it had been years since, you know, I had stopped teaching, but, uh, it, and as a matter of fact, I do keep in touch with some of them, and they, some of them have come here uh, since, because, you know, they're in their 40s and 50s, and some, well, some are even older than that. But... Um, when we were um, when I was teaching there, and the school board started something called uh, that was having um, uh, companies have partnerships with schools, mm. and so I suggested to my husband that Forest Lawn was a good spot for, uh, for his the company to uh, have a partnership, uh, and uh, that partnership went on for quite a long time in that they, it wasn't just buying stuff for them, but they had a um, joint choir staff, for example. It was, um, it was a really good model. Now, whether the school board ever carried on with any of those things, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I find it really frustrating that uh, so many missed opportunities of being able to do things that 
are beneficial. And on the other hand, maybe there's a ton of those things going on, but we don't hear about it. Maybe maybe they're there all the time. I don't know. I, uh, this friend I was mentioning, Fred Keating, about um, uh, our renewed uh, in correspondence, and he was showing me some of the work he does for schools. And I mentioned that a number of years ago, uh, I don't know whether, did you ever, um, have you ever met uh, Jenny Bellsberg? No, I haven't. Well, she's another nice person you should interview. She's a lovely lady and has done, she and her husband, Hi, were great community supporters. And Jenny is actually, Jenny started, and then we had a founding group of people who started something called the Art, Calgary Arts Partnership and Education. And the idea was that we would uh, fund artists, you know, painters, uh, musicians, theater people, writers, whatever, to go into the school and work with teachers to teach the curriculum through an artistic way, mm -hmm. you know, like a different way of teaching. For them to understand. Yes, a different way of learning. Well, I mean, the school board said they can't learn the way you teach, you better teach the way they learn, and uh, it is, a, I, I hope, that it made a difference in the system because... We started out with a group of people, and our goal was to organize it and raise money for it because the school board was outside, so many things, you know, were started outside the school. And the rules were that um, schools had to apply for, to be part of this program, and they, students, teachers, and parents all had to agree, it had to be the whole school that was involved in this. And then they would, we would pay for teachers, for uh, artists to come in and work with teachers to teach, not to teach art or theater or dance or music, but to teach subjects through art or music or dance. Okay. And we started out with six schools. We ended up with 13. And uh, it was, um, it, it was a very successful program and you know the school board said oh this is wonderful this is wonderful but you know we got tired of raising money because we had to pay the artists and we also had to pay when the, we wanted the artist and the teacher to have time to work together to teach you know subject uh, to share we had to have a pay for a substitute to go in so I mean we didn't have a huge budget and most of the schools that took part in it were schools in what we call high needs areas. Now, I hope there's a legacy after that. You never know. I hope that the teachers who were involved in it continued to use the same ideas about teaching. Uh, so, um, but that, so many projects like that fall by the wayside. But it's a very big system. When you were teaching versus today's generation, what you see, have you seen a shift in the way things are being done in the back end? Well, I haven't been back in the schools for quite a long time, but uh, when I, as I said, I started teaching at a young age mm -hmm. and at a different time, and people would say to me when I was, you know, latter years of teaching, oh, well, how do you stand, you know, what are the kids after all this? 
It wasn't the kids, the students that were different, it were the teachers. It was the way the teachers approached it. Um, I thought the students were still pretty much... Now, having said that, I didn't want to teach in more affluent areas. Mm -hmm. I, I like teaching in an area where you knew exactly where you stood with, you know, like for example, we'd say, I'd say, oh, Mrs. Moore, you have such pretty blonde hair. Why do you dye your roots black? And if I, that's Forrest Lawn, or Ernest Moore, or Sir Wilfrid Laurier, Elbow Park, they'd say, oh, Mrs. Moore, your hair looks nice. And then they'd go, did you get a look at her hair? Ah, uh, you know? yes, different. Everything is, first of all, what I found about there, and, and why I was successful is, for, in some areas, um, and I, you know, I, you shouldn't generalize, but they were used to aggression out there. Mm -hmm. So if you weren't aggressive to them, it was, it was really uh, was something. For taking back, yeah. And, you know, well, I always say it doesn't matter. When you go to a new school, your first year is often agony until they, you know, you yeah, get so used yeah, to the yeah. culture. And sometimes it takes three years before you find. But I would say to uh, my students, um, these are the rules, and these are the consequences. Mm -hmm. And you know, this is what I've learned in life: is that for every action, there's a consequence. So, you know, figure out what you want to do. Were you a strict teacher? Well, I wasn't strict in the sense of you know, severe, but I was consistent. And you know what I find about, you could be really nice, or you could really be really awful, mm -hmm. but if you're inconsistent, they didn't like that. Right. And so, like for example, the rule was, I remember, this is the beginning when I was teaching, and the rule was that, you know, we have a bell system. We always opened the doors at Ian Basil Janet's. I never ever went to school where I was the first one in the building. They used to open the door. Well, they, you know, those children had many had nowhere else. I don't know where they. Maybe they were living in cars. I don't know. But we opened the doors. Not in, like in some areas that the doors don't open till the bell goes and mm -hmm. people are standing outside. Because, but anyway, and there's. I actually had that in elementary school in the northeast. You have to wait, it's locked. Oh, it's not open yet. No, our school was open. Well, I'll tell you one thing that happened is that the very first day I went, I went, I parked, and I went in the door, and there was this boy, and he looked like he hadn't changed his clothes in months. And he was slouched on the stairs, like, you know, like this. Mm -hmm. And I said, good morning, and then... Every morning, he would be there. I never taught him because, you know, you have homerooms and whatever. Never taught him, but I never missed saying good morning to him. He never, ever responded to me. I don't know what his name was. I, what his circumstances were, because, you know, I was new in the building and was maybe, he was in grade nine probably, or maybe he was grade eight. He didn't ever come back the next. And then, a number of years later, I was at my desk, 
after school. I'm sitting there, and in the door is open, and in comes this fellow in a, a soldier's uniform, and he comes up to my desk, he clicks his heels and he salutes, and he said, Mrs. Moore, do you remember me? And it was this boy. You just named Chelsea. Yeah. Whoa. And, I mean, yeah, I had to say, well, you know, mm -hmm. some mornings, I, I don't know that I ever thought, I'm not speaking to you anymore, or I'm not going to say anything, to, you know. I mean, I could have said, how come that I speak to you everywhere, you never, well, you know, I guess I was, but I, I always said, good morning, and, and of course, if you'd been in my classroom, I'd have got to find out what's going on with you, but at that time, uh, the school had complete new, when I w went to that school, had new administration, a completely different mm -hmm. administration. And they, we started something called the Effective Schools Project. But prior to that, I think it had been, a, a, well, a hellhole in that it had such a bad reputation. They had vandalism and all sorts of things. And I must say that Effective Schools Project really turned the school around. But, um, you know, I had another incidents that I, oh, I know, is that, so where it's the, I have my homeroom, you know, junior high school, and the rule is there's three bells and one is warning, whatever, and and, and, and if you don't uh, get in when the bell goes, you uh, get a late slip. And then a late slip, I don't know, I guess they had uh, so many get a detention, I don't know. Um, and so anyway, this uh, girl, She's very social, and she's flitting around the hall, and she was, she's, comes uh, in after the bell goes. Well, I let it go once. And then the next time, I, sa I said, get a late slip. And she says, Mrs. Moore, you saw me in the hall that I was here. I said, well, yes, but you were in the room when the bell went. She says, oh, I said, she said, you should have told me. You should have made me come in when you saw me out there. I said, if I wanted to be a policeman, I'd have joined the Calgary Police Force. She said, you're too small. Off she went to get it. <laughs> but, you know, if you are consistent, they know. And, you know, I'd hear things like, no one writes on the, Mrs. the desks in Mrs. Moore's room. And it was... I took that as a compliment because this is a special place. And you know, I'd say this is why I'm here, this is what I'm prepared to do. What are you prepared to do? You know, what's your, who are you? And you know, I had a really uh, wonderful thing happen to me one time. Well, it was a bad one, but it was the early days of computers. And I had some computers in my room. And I, there was a group of boys that were really keen on using, you know, it was really a novelty. And, was, and so I never, I always stayed in my room over the lunch hour, and they, they could come in, and two or three of them. And we had, uh, in every room, we had a cupboard with a, that you could lock, and I had put my purse in there. Uh, and um, so I... One day we were there, and I had to. Someone called me down to the office, noon hour. So I left, and when I came back, they go, Mrs. Moore, Mrs. Moore, look, you gotta hear this, you gotta hear this. 
and they had a tape recorder. And this boy, who had been one of the, well, he was, um, he's one of the, there's always some in the classroom that everyone's just a little bit afraid of, you know, kind of the passive-aggressive bully, you know. And we all kind of, even the teachers kind of kowtowed him a bit in a, a way. Anyway, I didn't know this, but apparently this boy had a set of school of keys for all the rooms, like pass keys for all the rooms. All the kids knew this. And uh, so anyway, he had come. So what they had done, he'd come to the room, and he looked in, and he said, where's Mrs. Moore? She, she's out. And so he leaves, and he comes back, and they knew what he was doing, because everyone knew that he'd been going into the classrooms mm -hmm. using okay. these keys. All the kids knew this. So who's going to tell, because this is a big guy? And so anyway, so they rushed and they got the, the a little tape recorder, you know, those little ones. Yeah. And when he came in the room and they said, hey, John, what are you doing in Mrs. Moore's closet? Are you stealing money out of her purse? Yeah, I am. I'm stealing some money so I can buy some booze for something or other. It's on the tape. I come back and I'm, I'm, I'm stunned. I think, what do I do with this? So I go down to the, I knew because I had, I had $85 in bills in my purse. I didn't often have money, but I had noticed that some money had been disappearing, but you know, you don't pay much attention. Anyway, it just happened, he took the whole $85. So I went down to the principal and I said, well, I don't know what to do with this. And he immediately phones the parents and the parents came and they hand over me the $85. And uh, it turned out that it was, uh, it was a mixed race marriage and the dad said, you know, once the police, we don't want you to phone the police because once the police know you, they never let you down, you know, they never let you go. So I, uh, I went home and uh, my principal, called me in the morning to say that he had called the police in. And I felt, I felt kind of badly about it, but I knew we had to do something about it. And so anyway, uh, we were in first class and the police car can drive right up to the door. And he comes in, the next thing you know, John's out sitting in the car with the policeman. And uh, it turned out that they moved him to another school. But the policeman came to me and uh, he said to me, you know, I've never known kids to do this, so you should be very, you know, feel very good about the fact that they did. He said, I asked them, why did you do this? And they said, Mrs. Moore's been nice to us. She's always nice to us and we didn't like him doing this to her. So I said, now, everybody in the school knows this is happening and he's, and now what? This is before they moved into another mm -hmm. school. And he said, every, the kids saw me get John out of the class, take him out, sit him in the police car, so they know. That, Don't mess around, yeah. Uh, but I was very, very impressed with the school resource officers. So 
the Calgary Police Force. I think we're lucky to have, I mean, I don't know what it's like at one o'clock in the morning when you're out and about, but for the most part... I salute them and the things they go through. Um, actually, on Monday I have the chief. Oh, good. Yeah, oh. that's going to be interesting. Well, to say, well, now, you, now, now you tell me, when uh, you see him, yes. don't forget, I want you to tell the story. I've told the story to many people. Okay, one thing, i got to make sure this is on. Every 25 minutes, this thing turns off on me. Okay. It's ridiculous. Because I think this is such a wonderful tribute to the police. Perfect, yeah. I would love to tell him. Mark Neufeld is his name. Yes, yes. well, um, this is a couple of years ago. Oh. I was out at a party. And it was in June, it was, uh, and this fellow was there, and he said to me, you know, the other morning, like our blue boxes go out at Friday morning, and he said, and I heard a noise, and I went to the window, and there was a street person going through my blue box. And I'm watching this, says he, and a police car drove up. And the policeman got out, and he says to this fellow, sir, do you need a place to sleep? Do you need food? Is there anything you need? He said, I was so proud that that man was treated with such dignity. I was proud to be a Calgarian. I told the mayor that story, actually. So I think that... You need to go out there. I believe that. Well, you know, I had a, a minor... I don't know how it happened, but someone hit my car. You know how it happens. And, mm -hmm. and I, I took it out to get uh, fixed. And, you know, I said to them, why didn't you just say it was 1999? Because once it's $2,000 to fix it, I got to get a sticker. Uh, it was in the midst of the pandemic. And they said, oh, just go phone. And you can phone in and do it. So I phone in and they say, go online. Or go to your local whatever. Registry. So I go out to district number one. And it's locked up, there's no one around, and there's a sign with phone number. So I phoned the number, and they said, I'm sorry, you have to go online to do this. I said, I'm 90 years old. I have so much trouble going online. And I just, and he says to me, maybe you shouldn't tell the police chief this. No, I won't tell you. He says, I'm not supposed to do this. You go out to your car, you get your documents, and I'll come out. Oh, that's so, nice. so he came out, he wasn't in uniform, he said, uh, and I, by this time, I've got the stuff, and uh, he looks at my car, and he said, you get in your car and stay warm, because it was kind of windy. And he said, I'll be back in a bit, and he came back and he did it for me. Good man. And, I, you know, that's using common sense, because, and, but that has been my experience with the police. And I'll tell you another thing that happened last, um, it was before the pandemic. My friend and I were walking home from a rally. It was a volunteer appreciation or something down on 4th Street. Uh, and we're walking home and we get up here and this car comes careening around the corner, makes a U-turn and, you know, we're going, uh, what's going on? And the road was kind of blocked off down at this end. And suddenly we hear this woman, help me, help me, help me. And so I go to the car, and there's this young girl in the car. It's, it's a very nice, you know, SUV of some kind. Mm -hmm. And she is in hysterics, and she's got her phone, and she's crying. And, you know, I'm saying, where do you live? Where do you? She said, 
I went to someone's house and they gave me something and I don't know where I am. And I, I said, where do you live? Out in the north. Well, I'm not driving here. Mm -hmm. So I said, you better come inside. So she came in and, sat, and she was completely hysterical. And I, so I phoned the police. And the first thing they said to me was, does she have a gun? Oh, my God. I said, no. I don't think so. I know, and I can't, you know, she says someone put something in her drink or whatever. And so, on a few minutes, up came a police car. And they came in and said, uh, you know, I told them what happened. And uh, apparently, she had gone, I guess, had been, had phoned 911 as she's driving around. She doesn't know where she is. Where she had come, I don't know what the story was, but uh, they had been looking for her because she got cut off, so it was good that I had phoned. Because mm -hmm. they got, I couldn't get over how fast they came, but I stayed up till two o'clock in the morning because, you know, I was concerned. He mm -hmm. came in and they got her, and she hardly had anything on, and they had gave her a blood. Next thing you know, um, the uh, ambulance uh, uh, came up on the other side of the mm -hmm. street. Uh, the EMS, and I saw them take her across, and she's there. And uh, then the policeman came and said to me, uh, can I, uh, I think he asked, do you mind if we park her car in front of the house, kind of in the middle of the road? I don't think they wanted to drive her home. Mm -hmm. Maybe they couldn't find out where she lived. I don't know. But the car sat out there, and then in the morning it was gone. But 2 o'clock in the morning, they finally left. But I'm watching because oh, <laughs> the police car's there and the EMS. And so I never did hear what the end of the story was, but uh, it was they were, you know, right on it. Uh, so I think we're... Mm -hmm. um, we're so lucky that we have, you know, the other thing is, I was really disturbed the other day uh, when I read in the paper that people were upset because a policeman shook hands with someone in one of those rallies. Oh, did you yeah. read that? Yeah, I did hear that. I mean, I understand perfectly <laughs> that you, you don't want to cause, you don't want to have bears, yeah. you know. And, I mean, it makes a lot more sense to say, look, say, you know what, can you get disperse these people? And the guy said, okay, we'll let them go on and shake hands. Mm -hmm. And to think they were criticizing this guy because he shook hands with them when he's just trying to, uh, you, you know, do, cool. ease the situation. Yes. You know, years ago, we had the World Petroleum Congress in Calgary. I don't know whether you would have been around. Was at, that at the big four? It was in the uh, convention center. Yeah. We had 81 countries here. Jim Gray was the chair. Both Cheryl and I were on the organizing committee. Mm -hmm. And we had, uh, you know, the police uh, organizing security. I mean, it, we had to have security because it was, uh, the you know. Dignitaries here. Yeah. Exactly. And they were, they were just amazed, the people came about, first of all, how many volunteers we had. The, there were a handful of people down at Olympic Plaza that were having fun. They were supposedly uh, protesting, but what were they protesting? I mean, there's really, then, 
nothing to protest about because a the oil business was good booming. and very <laughs> booming and our economy was high and all the rest of it. And when we went, we had the opening ceremonies. You see, we'd been around the world to World Petroleum Congresses where they really do have security. And they always have an opening ceremony and a closing ceremony, whether it's in London or Tokyo or wherever. But ours was at the Jubilee Auditorium. And the police lined up on either side of the road going up around behind the uh, to get into the parking. And they were all saluting, no guns, no, yeah. and, and the people were, they were flabbergasted, you know, to have this such a, a welcoming mm -hmm. reception that was not um, uh, causing, you know, people to be um, uh, confronting you, you know. I, I remember, um, going to eastern Turkey and we went through like 25 checkpoints this is before the Syrian hassle but at those in those days you know Iraq Iran Syria uh, what's the other one uh, where they Armenia everyone's a potential enemy and they've got check stops at all those places and all of these Turkish uh, military they never crack a smile you try to go, you know, I hear you. <laughs> no, it's scary. And, you know, we were, uh, we were in a small bus, 12 of us, uh, counting the driver and, and the, uh, uh, our guide. And we'd been told, no photos, no photos. So Cheryl and I, because of his, his ability, we were sitting in the front seat and the guy's sitting here, the driver's here, the guy's sitting Another couple from Calgary are sitting here. And at these checkpoints, they have sandbags, you know, and they have guns, and the people are sitting up there. They're all, you know, this is grim looking anyway, you know, they look. And I, and I saw this fellow, and he's, he's watching, and this woman, she takes her camera and takes a picture. And I watched him. No expression. He comes around, he walks around. And there's three lanes. You go up the first lane and then they do, and then you, you move over in the second lane. And when you finally get to the third lane, you move on and go on in your way, you pass everything. It's very organized. So we get all the way over to the third lane, ready to go. All of a sudden, obviously, the head guy, who's the commander, he is in the front of the bus like this. Uh -oh. <laughs> His most serious look. Yeah. And he gets on the bus and he speaks. And the guy turns around to the woman and says, Do you, Were you taking pictures? She goes, Yes, you know. You take her camera. Well, it's, uh, there's some negotiation going on here. Uh, I mean, they, they just uh, erased the picture that she took. But here's this. First of all, uh, this smiling and being cute uh, is not selling in the place. First of all, it's not going to the press. It's not for the news. It's, it's just being a tourist. But you know, we've got the driver who's trying to make a living taking things through. We've got the guy who's trying to make a living. We don't know whether they put us all in jail that because she's taking pictures when she's not supposed to. But how? 
How inconsiderate is this for this woman when she's been asked not to take pictures to go ahead and, just, to go ahead and do it and put the rest of us, rest of us at risk? You've got to just respect it all. Yeah. Well, you, you must have been upset. <laughs> well, I saw her do it, and I saw him move, uh, but I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wasn't sure exactly what, but I knew he, because they, never, they don't smile, and they're watching the whole time I knew he saw her do it. And, and you don't know what they're thinking in their minds out there. And like you said, their aggression is different than our aggression. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, anyway, it is, uh, I'm lucky to have had the experience that um, mm -hmm. I've had in my lifetime. When you look at the First World War, the Depression, World War II, did the pandemic scare you at any moment in time? I honestly, no. Mm -hmm. And I feel like kind of embarrassed to say that because you know, when you're, A, I'm not in a nursing home. I don't have to be out doing, you know, I mean, I'm not paranoid, but I'm not stupid either. I don't have to be out putting myself or other people at risk. I'm not living in a small apartment with a whole bunch of, you know, uh, for just so many reasons. Uh, I mean, I feel sad for the people who are in situations I, I, well, long before the pandemic, I have been very angry at these seniors' homes that make huge profits. I've been talking about this for quite a while. Because when my mother was in, she died at 98, and the last year and a half, she was in a senior's home. So I was aware about how the turnover in staffing always a different person coming to put you to bed. And, you know, when you're in, uh, you know, my mother wouldn't have been in there if she hadn't needed help. And my first realization of it was, she said, oh, I feel so sad because, and she named this person, Rita, is I, I liked her so much and she helped me to go to bed at night and she said, but readers had to go because she got a chance to go. To, this was a um, senior's home. First of all, it was all one floor level, which was a great. Now they're high rise and elevators. And it was one of the early ones. And, you know, it was like a series of H's connected by a courtyard in the middle and the dining room. And, and at the very end was the Alzheimer's area. And the Alzheimer's area, uh, well, I guess maybe you could get more hours. And this woman, who she liked so much, only got, you know, three hours a week or whatever here. She could go there and get six hours or two shifts or whatever. I don't know what it was. But she needed the money. So it was very clear to me that how you save money is you, A, you only have maybe 10% of your staff are full-time. You've got 90% are contract. Mm -hmm. You save all that money in benefits. Because once you go over a certain you hour, you've got to pay the benefits. This is how they save money. This is how, mm -hmm. why you have those poor people working in those places that have to go to three or four different places, which was spreading the 
the virus because you have to go to work, you, feed, you have to feed your family. I mean, this is, this is a terrible thing. Um, and this is, when I, I was on the Board of State for six years and on the President's Advisory Board for longer, and I was very aware of um, the fact that one way that institutions can save money is, and with unions, is contract work. Is contract, but you have to deal, have to make a, if you're with a union, uh, you may want to have 75% full time staff, they say it's a 25 mm. contract, but the union doesn't want that. They want it 100% or 90 10, they might go along with. So, this is a way that this, that you're able to, you know, my daughter and I had this uh, discussion. Because I said, I think it is evil for people to make huge profits on seniors' homes. The backs of people, yeah. And she said, well, they, they have to make a profit. Mm -hmm. But it's a bit like CEO salaries these days. How much is a reasonable profit? That man who got fired from, not fired, but quit from the Canada, Canada Pension Plan oh, yes, yes. was making five point something million dollars a year. How do they justify that? What does the clerk make? You know, uh, that to me that seems wrong. But then, uh, my friend and I, whose husband I went to high school with, you know, we grew up in the oil industry. Uh, I mean, no one expects you to be uh, work for nothing, but how much is a CEO worth compared to, well, the bankers, for example, what they play, the lonely teller who meets everyone. I mean, I, I guess the more I think about it, the more I am in a more socialist way. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, did you read, there's a book out I read, um, it's, uh, it's called uh, The Globalization Paradox. Okay, no, I haven't read it. Okay, well, it talks about the trilemma, about, you know, what happens to how you... It's all about the bottom line and, this, and the shareholder, how you can... what you give up in order to have that mm -hmm. uh, in democracy, for one thing. But it's also when it's all about profit, uh, what does that do to societies? Uh, you know, um, as here again, I'm talking about the working poor were the ones that I felt the saddest for in, uh, when I was on Forest Lawn is because you have to work so you can be taken advantage of if you have no choice. And this is what's happened to some of those people in the pandemic that worked in those homes that they had to go to work because if they didn't go to work, they didn't get paid. You know, food on the table. Yeah. So I, I don't know whether that's an answer to you or you're frightened about the pandemic. Um, well, you know, 
I had lunch with my, a friend and her granddaughter, just finished her first year of university. This is before the pandemic. And so we sat down for lunch and uh, first thing this young girl said to me, what do you think about the pandemic? Or, no, what do you think about uh, global warming? And so I said, what do you think of it? And so she went on to say about it. And then she, uh, you know, she obviously wanted to unload about what was going on. And she said, you know, our generation, you know, there's not going to be jobs. And then, and you went on and on and on. And I said, you know, uh, we went, you know, your grandmother and I, the, uh, all the things I've mentioned, depression, war, the Cold War, you know, the when the, the atomic bomb, the hydrogen bomb, the, mm -hmm. you know, building bomb shelters. It's, it's always been something. Always been something that is, you think is, some, and there's a certain comfort in realizing this too shall pass. We got through it. Um, so, I don't know. I, was it funny to see people's reaction? Well, this is a, my first time seeing this all happen. There was this uh, irony at its finest. I mean, the toilet paper incidents and people's true colors come out and how silly our minds were. <laughs> is this the craziest you've seen things happen this time around? Well, only because of a generation that is all about your rights. And you know, it's the cancel culture. Mm -hmm. It is about everyone having guilt. Like, for, just for example, how long have you lived in Canada? Were you born in Canada? I was born in East Africa, Tanzania. Okay. And I came here four months old, so pretty much Canada. Yeah, but nevertheless, yeah. your family. Yes. Why should they feel guilty about what happened to the Aboriginals in, you know, 1492 or wherever, the way they were treated? Sure. And yet everyone has to share that guilt. You know, for example, uh, the, how many people, you know, every time you turn on the paper, that you hear about someone that is being either fired or chastised, or this woman oh, who... The Me Too movement? Whatever, that. And, you know, uh, no one seems to be able to just kind of accept that that's the way it was, and we have moved on. And aren't we lucky that we've moved on? Yes. To try to bring up stuff, you know, when I, when I mentioned about my, uh, my, grand, my mother's dad, who was in the Pantages Theater in the northern U.S., northwest U.S., and when he retired, did I tell you this? He retired. On no, you didn't a, tell me the retirement. Okay, he retired on a chicken ranch orchard in Anacortes, Washington, right on the Puget Sound. It's a beautiful spot. But he retired with a male partner. Oh, yes, you did tell me, yeah. Now, you know, when I was growing up, um, it was an awareness that some people liked you know, their own sex, but no one talked about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it wasn't, um, and I knew in university, I, I had this, these friends, 
and they were, and they ended up getting married, these two women. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't, I don't know, maybe I just was... You didn't need to be out there in the public and say, hey guys, look what we're doing, and we want everyone to know. It was just their personal life. Yeah. They lived their was, life. It was kind of, well, you see, this is what I say about, um, in the war, one thing about the war is that when you have constant propaganda, you know, and horrible things went on in the war, and I mean, Hitler was a, you know, a terrible person, and everyone, even before the war started, it was scary how they would see every movie. We, we all went to movie theaters, it's always a newsreel. And it was constant, see, the war started in 1939, so I was pretty young, when you'd see all of these people out there rally, and he'd be speaking and yelling out in Germany, and they'd all be going, see Kyle, see Kyle, see Kyle. That was scary. Of course. And, you know, rallying all those people, young people. Uh, so, so you had... Um, that and then of course I still remember the morning that announced December seventh with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Then you had the Japanese. So if you have the Germans as a nation and you have the Japanese as a nation to hate or to be constantly telling how terrible they are, you don't really have the rest of you are all together and so it wasn't uh, discrimination against other people. First of all. There was, uh, well, there were Catholic schools. We didn't, you know, no one t talked about Catholics and Protestants. I, I had never heard the word, you know, some of those derogatory words, like, uh, I, I never heard them in my house, so. Oh, the bad I'm, words, yeah. <laughs> sorry? The bad words, yeah. Yeah. Uh, because, but I have to say that no, now, you know, when I was older, I realized how hard it must have been for, terrible it must have been for the average German and the people in Japan, you know, because of what leaders do and what happens. And, but it is, uh, and when you're poor and you're worrying about the, you know, food and shelter and clothing, uh, you don't really have time to be, and to be honest with you, I uh, was, in those days, you know, you were, you go outside and play. Uh, you didn't worry about what was going to happen. Uh, you know, you didn't have to have everything organized. And you, you know, if, as long as you're home for your meals, we never, we always had meals together. You had to be home for your, for meals. You know, there's no such thing as, well, I remember maybe when television, and we never had television, that's when people started eating in front of what the oh, television. Yes. But before that, it was a requirement. And if you're out in playing in the evening, you were in when the street light before the street lights came on. It was a uh, so. We're, but we're outside playing uh, this day, and I can't remember whether it was three or five, or it wasn't anymore that black boys walked by. And they said, hi, white trash. Oh, my God. And I'd never heard that, ex but I knew it was a bad expression. But I'd never heard it. And I didn't really think anything 
Obviously. when I saw them because it was a it was a very um, relaxed society. You know, you didn't feel threatened by. So I remember feeling awful when they said that to us because we weren't doing anything. I think we were playing one, two, three, Larry. You know, with a ball out on the street, and they just kept on walking, and we didn't. I mean, now if someone did that to you, you'd be phoning the police and me oh, making course. a report. And horrible. And who knows what their experiences were. But you know what's really interesting? On the radio, uh, they announced that something was going to be named, and I couldn't, I didn't, all I heard was Violet King something. And she was the only black girl in Western Canada High School when I was there. And we all, we're in awe of her because she's this really good student. And she was older, but she became a lawyer, I think the first lawyer, I don't know what it was, but I heard it on the radio. And they've named something in her honor. So what I'm saying is it was such a, so many ways, a, an innocent society. Simple times. Yeah, yeah and maybe, I, maybe we were just, um, <clears throat> We were not privileged in the sense of, of goods, yeah. but we were privileged in uh, many other things that were more important. Like, for example, I don't know how my parents paid <coughs> for dentistry or the doctor. It was expensive back then. <laughs> well, I don't think it was, because otherwise they wouldn't have been able to pay. Uh, it, I think we were, I think we had to be a very well-run, organized city. Mm -hmm. Calgary, of course, was small. When you, when you went to Western High School, was it, oh, so it must have been like, what, 10 years, 15 years old only, this high school itself? Oh, no. Uh, Western Canada High School is, let's see, how many years ago? At its hundredth anniversary. Oh, okay. Uh, so I think it's about 110 years old. So uh, it had been what it had been. It's quite, you know, it looks quite different now because there used to be a building in front, which was our library. Was there still 17th Avenue? Was it a popular street? Yes, and across the street was the Polar Bar where we all hung out, and for 16 cents you could get a milkshake. And it was really interesting because um, a few years ago, I was somewhere and I sat next to a woman and uh, we got talking and she told me that her parents owned the Polar Bar. The Polar Bar was the hangout for us at Western. It would be about where uh, one of those restaurants is in oh, there. Oh, the Una Pizzas or something like that. Yeah. And she said... I worked in that, in the polar bar, and she said, I still have a sore wrist from <laughs> digging out the ice cream. Who knows? Oh. Yeah. What do you miss about those days? Like, what was Calgary like back then? Like, the entire city, was it, was it simpler, was it easier, was it calmer? Well, of course it was simpler, easier, and calmer, mm -hmm. and... Um, of course, I didn't know any 
different because at the time, you know at the time, and you know there wasn't a lot of traffic. I think it's unfortunate that the the city had allowed the sprawl, uh, but then you know look how many people came here to get work in the oil industry. Oh yeah, from out east. Yeah, but I think it was more uh, more homogenous. Because every time you get people coming in, they bring their own uh, values. values. So when I say it was more pioneer, prairie, um, and pride, uh, one year the bus drivers had a strike during Stampede. Stampede was always a big thing mm -hmm. in Calgary and... Did you get to meet the big four or the, the Pat Burns you met? Right? Yes, Pat, Pat Burns, because my dad worked for yeah. him. Uh, no, I don't. I didn't ever meet. Uh, Guy Wiedek, I think it was. No. Uh, 1912 must have been quite a time. Before the First World War, must have been quite a time in Calgary because Stampede started yeah. the public library. Mm -hmm. the, First. Did you know that was started by a woman? I did not know that. Oh, you know what? Someone recently told me that. Yeah. Uh, she was... Um, that's the, when there's a famous five they talk about, it, I think she was one of the... Women. No, she wasn't one of the famous five. She was before the famous five. Uh, oh, gosh, I shouldn't hear your pictures. And I should know her name. Just. Not Flores, right? No, not Flores. No. Um, I was going to say Annie Davidson. Annie Davidson, I think. Is it Annie Davidson? No, that's not the right... Anyway, yeah. she was a widow with five children, and she said, no city is worth anything if it doesn't have a library. And at the time, they, um, the... Uh, no, women didn't have a vote. And she, she had a book club. And she had the, uh, uh, somehow they had got, that's when uh, Andrew Carnegie was built, you know, was built all those libraries with the money that he had made. The university. And uh, I've forgotten how many libraries that he funded. $70,000, but it was just for the building. So they had to have the council willing to pay for the operations. So the women got to be, they got together, and they got signatures, I think it was 16,000 signatures, to present to the council, and they refused to fund the operations. So they had to go back again and get a peti you know, petition. And one of the reasons why the men were against the library was because the, taking the money off um, Carnegie was money that he raised on the backs of the poor. That was one of the reasons for being against it. But eventually they persisted. So there was the uh, city hall built, the library, Stampede started. Shortly after that, the uh, Alistair Hotel, which was the tallest building in Calgary when I was growing up. And so it was, and you know, the um, Lougheed House, 
Uh, the, um, Dean House, the White House, yeah. The Dean House was there, and the, uh, what's the other one that's now Rouge Restaurant? Uh, oh, uh, Crosses, A.E. Cross. A.E. Cross's house, because he could just walk to the brewery, because they had the brewery. Ah, had you met E. Cross, or had, was he around at that time? No. no, but I did know I met, um, uh, oh, what was her name? I had met her. She died quite a long time ago. She was over 100. But Sandy Cross was um, part of the Cross family, and we knew him. He was a bachelor, and eventually he married late in life to uh, Anne Abbott. And Anne Abbott had four sons, and Sandy Cross gave that property. Have you ever been at the Cross Conservation? I haven't, no. Oh, I, you, you should, in uh, the spring and okay. in the summer, you should go there. It's really lovely. He gave all that land that was his, you know, those are all ranching people, had land. And he gave that land to the province, mm -hmm. and they formed the Cross Conservation.